Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the third top tips of this year. Uh, this morning, um, a challenging topic. Chupi, uh, Orla is going to talk about what the regulations themselves are about, and Melanie is then going to talk about them in application. You'll hear things like insourcing, outsourcing, and various things like that. Um, the regulations themselves, they actually only run the 15 paragraphs or 15 clauses, which is remarkably short for employment legislation. However, it probably results in about 20% of our business, and perhaps it's the issues that are not in the legislation or the things that are not covered in the legislation which um, create the, 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 the biggest uh, difficulties and challenges for employers. So uh, first Orla, then Melanie, and then any questions you have, we'll try to answer them as quickly as we can. So over to Orla, thanks. Good morning. Um, as Jerry said, 2P is probably one of the most complex areas of employment law, notwithstanding it's just 15 paragraphs long. Um, people are generally afraid of it, they don't understand it, it's probably easier to figure out how you get the figs into the fig rolls than how you understand Tupi. But today is your lucky day, you're all going to be Tupi experts at the end of it. Um, I'm going to go through the very basics of it and what the regulations say, the concept behind it, um, and what employees' rights are and employers' obligations. Melanie then is obviously going to deal with outsourcing. So what is Tupi? TUPI is an acronym for Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employees, but the correct legal title is the European Community's Protection of Employees on the Transfer of Undertakings Regulations 2003. Quite a mouthful, hence we all call it TUPI. So where did it come from and what's its purpose? We'll just take a step back for a second. And as you all know, if you buy the shares in a company, well, then you are the new organisation, you are the legal owner, you own it. You take on the assets, liabilities, employees, warts and all, you take on everything. So what was happening was organisations were saying, hold on a second now, I actually don't want all the liabilities and I just want to cherry pick the nice things. So I'll take some of the assets, I'll take some of the really good employees, I'll leave the ones I don't want and I'll take the contracts. And then suddenly the employees were being left behind and made redundant and they weren't actually being allowed to follow the work. So the EU decided, okay, look, that's not fair. Employees, our job, or one of our jobs, is to protect and safeguard employees and their rights. So they introduced, for asset sales only, and that's very important, obviously 2P only applies to asset sales, the Transfer of Undertakings Directive way back in 1977. That was implemented in Ireland by the 1980s regulations, and then the current regulations, there was a few slight changes, but the current regulations as they stand are the 2003 regulations. So that is the concept behind TUPI and why it was introduced. So in order for TUPI to apply, there must be the transfer of an undertaking from one employer to another that retains its identity. So what is an undertaking? Again, an undertaking isn't something that we use in everyday language. So you probably have heard of the concept of an economic entity or an organised grouping of resources. And again, that's quite complex. So just think of an undertaking as a business or part of a business. That's all it is. So it's a part of a business which is standalone, so it's recognisable in its own right, and it transfers from one employer to another as a going concern, i.e. it retains its identity. So if, for example, you have a golf club and a golf course, and you buy the land and you buy the golf club, but you want to turn it into a dairy farm, well, you're clearly not buying a going concern. It hasn't retained its identity, so TUPI won't apply. So it's important to remember that TUPI doesn't just apply to commercial entities. 
it can also apply to the non-core areas of the business. So within all of your organisations, there are various different undertakings for the purposes of Tupi. That can be payroll, finance, security, maintenance, cleaning, catering. So all of those, if they transfer from one employer to another, can trigger Tupi. So now you understand what an undertaking is and where that is going from one employer to another, what does it mean for employees? Employees who are wholly or mainly assigned to the business that is transferring will transfer to the new employer on the same terms and conditions of employment, whether those are expressed in the contract, whether they're implied into the contract, or whether they're a term and condition by virtue of customer practice, and their service will be deemed continuous. So what does wholly or mainly mean? There isn't any statutory guidance on this, but we would generally say that if an employee is working 50% or more on the business that's transferring, well then that employee will transfer also. So that's the general rule of thumb. And then the new owner is fully responsible for all of the employee's rights and obligations that have accrued to date and obviously haven't been discharged yet. And going forward, they're responsible for all of the employee's terms and conditions of employment. So that's the employee's rights under the, the regulations. But does the transferring employer need to do anything? So I'm selling my business or part of my business. What do I need to do in order to comply with TUPI? Under TUPI, there are general provisions that apply to both the transferor, being the transferring employer, or the transferee, being the new employer, in relation to information and consultation. Now, under those information and consultation obligations, they only apply to each party in respect of their own respective employees. Okay, so that's very important. It's in respect of their respective employees. So the first thing you have to do is, if you don't otherwise have a union or some sort of you know, employee forum that you negotiate with, you have to set up or arrange for the election of employee representatives. Now, what that means in practice is very simply, you have your group of people who wants to be nominated and you arrange for a secret ballot or names in a hat or whatever works for you. Um, it doesn't have to be anything more sophisticated than that. In terms of the number of employee representatives, if you have a group of this, you know, 30 or 40 uh, employees, well then three or four employee representatives will be perfectly sufficient. If nobody puts up their hand because nobody wants the job, well then you have to inform the employees individually. Um, in terms of what you have to inform them with, it's a very simple letter. It's not anything more complex than that. It's very practical information. When the data transfer is, what is going to, the reason for the transfer and the implications of the transfer, i.e. your employment is going from company A to company B, your terms and conditions will remain unchanged and your service will be deemed continuous. It's, it's very simple. It's a letter. That's all it is. It's a one-pager and it goes to the employees or the employee representatives and it must be given 30 days in advance of the transfer. If there are any measures envisaged in relation to the transfer and how it's going to affect the employees, for example, if redundancies are going to be proposed or if there's a change in work practices, well, then you have to consult with those employees or the employee representatives for a period of 30 days before the transfer. Now, whilst that is a legal requirement, the reality is if you're selling the entirety of your business, the, the, the measures envisaged are really going to be dictated by the new employer. And unless you're talking to the new employer, you mightn't actually be able, you mightn't have any obligations under the regulations in terms of consultation. So that's sometimes the reality of it. 
So what does the new employer need to do? So I'm taking on the, all of these employees, so what do I actually need to do? Well, again, the information and consultation obligations are exactly the same, but because they're only in respect of my current employees, naturally my information and consultation obligations will depend on my current workforce and the, the extent to which any of my existing employees are going to be affected by the transfer. So if I'm a new employer and I actually, and I just win a contract or I buy part of a business and I'm taking on all these new employees and I don't have any existing employees, well then I don't have any information and consultation obligations. And the main thing for me as the new employer is to ensure that I honour the transferring employees' terms and conditions of employment. That is primarily my duty under the regulations. So one of the main questions which we always get asked is, okay, now I'm after bringing in all these 50 employees, but they have different terms and conditions to my current employees. When can I harmonise the terms and conditions? How long do I have to wait before I can have them all on the same level? And the answer is there is no timeline. Strictly speaking, you can't change their terms and conditions of employment. And many employers have two and three and four sets of different terms and conditions of employment for their employees. A lot of people then, I, I accept that that is a, a legal answer as opposed to maybe a commercial answer. So a lot of employers will try and um, implement change to have everybody on the same level. And they do that by either consent, fair enough, uh, they do it by consultation. They sit down and, you know, between the transfer or employee terms and conditions and the transferee and the existing um, terms and conditions, there might actually be a case of, look, overall they're the same, so we'll just go with one set. Um, but that obviously needs consent. Um, the other thing they do is you could often see people and they will buy out a benefit. They will give you a once-off payment to buy out a benefit so that they don't have to pay it going forward. Um, others then just say, look, I'm, I'm giving you notice and I'm forcing it through regardless. And that's a very, obviously, that's a, a very high-risk strategy, but it is a commercial reality as well. So, you know, they might say, look, I don't operate a company car policy. I'm going to give you a car allowance going forward, like it or lump it. And there is, you know, if, if employees are seeing that they're being treated in the exact same manner as everybody else across the board, they're less likely to bring a claim. They might complain about it, but they're less likely to actually bring a claim. So dismissals. You suddenly have another 50 employees that you probably don't need and you want to implement dismissals. So as a starting point, dismissals are automatically void under the regulations if they are connected with the transfer. There is, however, what's known as the ETO defence, which is the Economical, Technical and Organisational Defence, and that's a very complex way of saying redundancies. That's all it is, it's simply redundancies. So the important thing to remember in terms of the ETO defence or implementing redundancies is that it is much, much easier to justify a redundancy after the transfer than before. Because if you start implementing redundancies before the transfer, it's like you're trying to create this beautiful package, this lovely business, which is absolutely perfect, no fat around the edges, etc., just so you can secure a sale. And then it is obviously a lot easier to say that that redundancy and that dismissal was connected with the transfer. So if you are in negotiations with, with the business to either buy or sell, redundancies after the transfer, but I completely appreciate there will be you know, commercial negotiations in relation to who's going to pay for those redundancies behind the scene. If you do have redundancies going forward, you need to combine the employees that have transferred in with your current existing employees, and you have a combined pool of employees, and you apply the selection matrix 
all across the combined pool. Obviously, if you just decide to dismiss the employees who have just transferred into you, that is clearly a transfer-related dismissal and will be unfair. So one of the next popular questions is, can an employee refuse to transfer? And the answer is absolutely yes, not a bother, of course they can. But is that refusal a resignation or a redundancy? Melanie was the, the lawyer that led this case to the High Court um, about nine years, seven years ago at this stage. Um, and the High Court has settled law on this. And it says, all things being equal. So if there's no changes to terms and conditions of employment or where the work is being carried out, all things being equal, a refusal to transfer is a resignation. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have the protection and then want a redundancy payment on top of it. However, if you have a situation where, for example, you know, the business is moving from Cork to Dublin and the employees, naturally enough, don't want to leave Cork, they decide, no, I'm not going, well, then that would be a redundancy situation. And the employer in Cork, so the transferring employer, would be responsible for the redundancy costs. Finally, what if it all goes belly up on you? The reality is all of the liability transfers under statute to the new employer. If either side fail to inform and consult, the claim is four weeks pay per claim. We have yet to see a standalone claim of failure to inform and consult. It is often um, and most likely a case that the employee will bring this claim in conjunction with another claim, such as a breach of duty or an unfair dismissal, but we've rarely seen it um, as, a, as a standalone claim. Um, if you dismiss an employee where it is transfer related, or you breach TUPI by changing their terms and conditions of employment, the exposure is up to two years gross remuneration. So it is quite a hefty exposure. And one thing to remember is there is no service requirement in order to bring a claim under TUPI. So if it's the case that you think, I'll just get out the people, you know, I'll dismiss the people that only have six months service because they won't be able to bring a claim under the Unfair Dismissal Acts. That is correct. They won't be able to bring a claim under the Unfair Dismissal Acts. But you could get caught under TUPI because they can actually bring a claim under this, these regulations. So just be mindful of that. So that is the basics of TUPI. Hopefully you understand now what the regulations say, the employees' rights and the employers' obligations. And Melanie, I was going to talk about outsourcing in TUPI. We rarely come across problems with clients when TUPI applies in relation to informing and consulting or electing employee representatives. And yes, people struggle with the harmonization of terms and conditions afterwards. And yes, the odd employee gets, empl gets dismissed or the redundancy processes get complicated. Um, where people and clients and lawyers get really bogged down is with the question of whether or not TUPI applies. Um, that's a very easy question to answer when you're talking about the sale of a golf club or when you're considering an organization offloading its manufacturing arm or when you're thinking about a business which owns six shops and it's selling the six shops or it's selling three of the six shops, then the employees with the golf club or the employees in the manufacturing arm or the employees in six or three of the shops transfer with the shops or the manufacturing arm or the golf club and they transfer with their accrued service and with their existing terms and conditions of employment. But TUPI, as Orla already said, 
can also apply when a function, and a, a function which isn't necessarily core to a business, but is nevertheless a function, uh, is being outsourced, or there's a change in contractors, or it's being insourced. Um, and that's where the confusion arises. And as Orla said, this applies, or we come across it, and clients come across it, when they're looking at, in particular, things like catering, cleaning, maintenance, security, distribution, finance function, the payroll function. Um, and the purpose of the next 10 or 15 minutes is to look at that in particular and try to give you the tools to decide for yourselves whether or not Tupi is triggered uh, and whether it'll apply. Because once you decide that it applies or once it becomes clear whether or not it applies, then actually complying with it uh, can be easy enough. Before I start, we, we tend to use the term outsourcing as a generic term to describe all of the various scenarios, but I just want to explain um, when this arises in practice. And there are three scenarios in particular, and I've used an example here. So if Mace, we have a lovely coffee shop downstairs, a cafe downstairs, and we could run that ourselves, or we could have an outside service provider come in to do it. And if we ran it ourselves and we decided to appoint Campbell Catering to come in to provide the service for us, that is us, Mason, Hayes and Curran, outsourcing our catering function. So say we gave Campbell Catering the contract for four years and at the end of the four years, we put the contract out for tender again. Campbell Catering tender for it. We're thinking about whether we might, you know, hire a few people and do it ourselves. Or we look at other interested parties and ultimately we decide that we're going to appoint Baxter Story to man the cafe for us downstairs and to run the cafe for us downstairs. And that is what we call a change in contractors or a change in service providers. So the contract goes from Campbell Catering to Baxter Story, and they run the cafe for us for four years. And at the end of the four years, we decide to put it out to tender again, but we're also wondering whether we might actually just do it ourselves because we'll have more control over it. And if we ultimately we decide that we want, want to run the catering function and the cafe ourselves, and we take it back in-house, that's what we call insourcing, okay? And each and every time we do that, we need to decide whether Tupi applies. And it's actually not a choice. It depends on whether or not it is triggered. And how is it triggered? And that is the multi-million dollar question. So well, maybe not multi-million dollar, but you know, it keeps us busy, as, as Chair says, uh, euros, sometimes hundreds of euros. Um, so. There has to be two things. The function has to be an economic entity in its own right. And the test for this is whether there is an organized grouping of assets or resources which would retain its identity after the transfer. So if we go back to the cafe, we have the room downstairs, we have the cookers and the fridges, and we have the guys who work down there, guys and girls who work down there, and they are dedicated to the cafe. You're not going to find them sitting behind a desk giving legal advice. 
well, you shouldn't find them behind a desk giving legal advice. So they are a dedicated set of assets and a dedicated set of employees, which, after it's outsourced, retains its identity. But there has to be a concomitant, and, and concomitant means at the same time, there has to be a transfer of significant, significant, tangible or intangible assets, or a transfer of the majority of the employees in that function in terms of their numbers and skills. And that means if there's no transfer of assets or there is no transfer of employees, there is no Tupi. And I have to say, half the time I am having conversations or we are having conversations with clients about Tupi, they are incorrectly assuming that Tupi applies or somebody in the chain somewhere has decided it suits them for Tupi to apply and everybody just rose in without questioning it. So our job and your collective job is actually to look at what's happening, look at and see where you fit into the chain and determine whether actually Tupi applies or it doesn't. So the courts have drawn a distinction between asset-reliant functions and labour-intensive functions. And what do I mean by that? Well, an asset-reliant function is something like a distribution function. So think about a distribution function. There is no distribution without the lorries or the trucks or the trailers. That means that in order for Tupi to apply, those lorries or trucks or trailers have to transfer. But the situation is actually quite different if you're looking at something like a cleaning function or a maintenance function or an IT service uh, or security. Um, they are not functions which you need lorries for or in fact you need any assets for because the asset is the human capital, it's the personnel. And in a function which is what we call labor intensive, so one which was reliant on the manpower, when that is outsourced or transferred, when there's a change in the service provider or it's taken back in-house, then in order for Tupi to apply, the assets, the physical assets actually don't really matter. A couple of bottles of GIF or SIF or whatever it's called these days and fairy liquid aren't going to trigger the application of Tupi. In those circumstances, what's going to trigger the application of Tupi is a transfer of the majority of the employees in terms of their skills and numbers. Now, that's not like the 50% threshold that Orla mentioned earlier on for determining whether somebody's work is related to that particular part of the function, because you could have somebody in the cafe who spends half their time in the cafe, but half their time in reception. And in order to decide if they transfer, you look at the 50-50 mark. But actually, when you're looking at the kind of the, the business as a whole, when it's being outsourced, and you're looking at the majority of employees, it's not just five of the 10 guys and girls who work in the cafe. You have to look at actually where the skills lie as well. So it's not just 50% of the headcount, it's 50% of the skills as well. Now, I don't tend to normally look at case law, but I actually think one of the best ways to explain the whole outsourcing conundrum is to look at a couple of decisions. And the first one I have up there uh, related to Balbriggan Garda Station. 
And there was a cleaner out in Balbriga Garda Station and she was employed by one of the cleaning cleaning companies. And the cleaning company lost the contract. Uh, the Department of Justice went out to tender. They lost the contract. They told her that she'd, she should go to the new service providers and that she was entitled to a job. Um, so the poor lady rocked up one Monday morning in her overall with her mop and her bucket and her cloths and uh, the new service provider said well actually no we're not taking you on so Tupi doesn't apply and they were right the employment appeals tribunal decided they were right because if the majority of the employees which in this case was only one cleaner if they don't transfer so if the transfer e the new employer the new service provider decides not to take the employees then Chupi doesn't apply. So it's a complete chicken and egg. The employees go, if the majority of the employees go, all of the employees go, and they go under Chupi. But if they don't, if they decide not to take on the employees, then Chupi doesn't apply. And what happens to the employees is a matter for the exiting service provider. So complete chicken and egg. Another good example of this is um, relates to a, the provision of a bus service in a Helsinki. Now, there were six bus routes in Helsinki and the Helsinki County Council decided to change the service provider and the exiting service provider had 26 buses and they had 45 drivers engaged in the manning of the particular six routes um, and they lost the contract and a new service provider was appointed. Now that new service provider had its own buses or bought 22 new buses and then they offered 33 of the 45 drivers jobs. So they had 22 of their own new buses. They didn't take on any of the buses from the exiting service provider, but they did actually offer new jobs to some of the previous contractors' employees. Who thinks Chupi applied? Okay, so what do you need to provide a bus service? Buses. So if the buses aren't transferring, so if the asset on which the service is reliant isn't transferring, does Chupi apply? Does it matter that they took on some of the employees? The answer to that is no, okay? So I have an example a little bit closer to home. United Cargo uh, were a distribution outfit and um, they had a thing called a contract, which they called a Spicer contract. And uh, they had a driver who they promised a little slice of the action to and he didn't get it. So he decided he was going to set up on his own. And he set up on his own. He set up a new company called Citywide Transport out in Rohini. And he bought his own lorries and he tendered for the Spicer contract and he got it. Okay, so he had his own lorry, bought his own lorries, tendered for the contract, got it and went back to his former employment and offered jobs to six of United Cargo's 10 drivers. So he did own new lorries, but he took on six of the 10. So if you think about it, it's majority in terms of the numbers, but he had his own lorries, new lorries. Did Chupi apply? 
No. You didn't think you were going to get asked questions this early in the morning, <laughs> did you? <laughs> to earn your keep in here. <laughs> um, so new lorries. So the assets on which that service were reliant didn't transfer. So it didn't actually matter that he took on a few of the employees because the buses in Helsinki didn't transfer or the lorries out in Rohini didn't transfer, Chupi didn't apply. Okay? Now, there is one exception to that. Well, one that we've come across so far. And the Chupi, you know, the Acquired Rights Directive has been around since 1977 and we've lived with the Chupi regulations since 1980. Um, and there is one exception which actually makes it all a little bit complicated. And I've been talking about Mason Hayes and Curran's cafe and Campbell Catering and Baxter Story all morning. Um, but it is settled law uh, before the European Court of Justice, uh, or the Court of Justice of the European Union as it's called now because they changed their name for some reason, um, and before the Irish Employment Tribunal and the High Court, that the use of particular assets as opposed to their ownership can trigger the application of TUPI. And this arises usually in one scenario, and that is with the catering function. Because if you think about a catering function, whether it's in Sodexo, which was a hospital, or whether it is in Mason, Hayes and Curran, the cookers, the fridges, the dishwashers, the saucepans, the cutlery, the light, the electricity, the heating in the cafe, it isn't normal for the ownership of those to transfer. And it isn't normal for service providers to bring in their own generators so they can have their own electricity. So the use of some assets can trigger the application of the Chupi regulations. So with something like catering, where the use of the cookers, the fridges, the saucepans, the electricity, the heating, can actually trigger the application of the Chupi regulations. So generally, with a catering function, Chupi will apply because the use of those assets will trigger the application of the Chupi regulations. So, a couple of practical tips. Whenever this comes up, stand back, think about it. Decide first, is this a function that needs assets? Do we need lorries? Or does the service provider need lorries? Does the service provider need buses? Is there, does the service provider need the use of our cookers, our dishwashers, our fridges, our saucepans, our cutlery? Or is this something that is purely driven by manpower? Is this a headcount, a specialist, expertise, personnel-based function? Is this security, cleaning, IT services, finance, something where you need people's brains as opposed to physical assets. If it's one which is asset reliant, the assets have to transfer for Chupi to apply. If they don't transfer, no Chupi. If you're looking at something that's labor intensive, cleaning, maintenance function, sorry, maintenance, security, IT, finance, payroll, if the majority of the employees don't transfer, if the new service provider decides they don't want them because they have enough of their own personnel or they're happy to hire personnel on the open market, if they decide they don't want them, no chupi. And that's where the mystery is. And like I said at the beginning, sometimes everybody just assumes chupi applies and we all plow on on that basis. But it isn't always necessarily the case. If Chupi does apply, or if you are an organization who is changing their service contract, 
service providers. So if you're changing from Campbell Catering to Baxter Story or from um, MyCAD Security to G4S Security, where is your involvement in it? What do you have to do with the transfer of employees? Well, actually, the answer to that is very, very little because the employees are going to go from Campbell Catering to Baxter Story or from MyCAD to G4S and actually don't necessarily have anything to do with you as an organisation because all you're doing is handing out the contract. Now, that's all very well in simple terms, but Orla mentioned commercial issues a few times earlier on, and it might very well be the case that your tender documents or your commercial contracts say that you'll make sure Campbell Catering will give Baxter Story details of the employees they have, redacted, of course, for data protection reasons, um, and details of their hours and details of their rates of pay so they can decide whether or not they want Chupi to apply. So you need to decide where you fit in to that piece of the jigsaw. If you are the organisation that has decided to outsource, as we did recently, uh, your post room, do you want to insist that the new service provider takes the employees? Uh, do you want to leave it up to them? In which case, do you have to give them the information about your employees so they can decide? Um, if you are an organization who's tendering for a contract, so if you are a service provider in the catering space or the security space uh, or in the IT support space, do you want the employees? Do you need the know-how that comes with them? And if you do, what do you need to get beforehand? You need to get details of their terms and conditions of employment and you need to get details of their service so you know what you're taking in because ultimately you're responsible and you're liable for everything that happens after the date of the transfer. Again, nothing in the Chupi regulations that talks about indemnities but where we get involved and where our jobs get a little bit complicated sometimes is if a new service provider wants an indemnity from either you as the outsourcing entity or another service provider in respect of anything that happened before the date of the transfer. Now, that's not something that's covered by the 15 articles in the GP regulations. That's something that happens as a matter of commercial negotiation and is quite common. So are you getting indemnities in respect of the employees that you're taking on for anything that happened prior to the transfer? If you're not, are you happy to live with the exposure? Because if there was a claim beforehand, that claim is transferring to you. Or if employees haven't taken all of their holidays, all those accrued holidays are transferring to you. And likewise, if you're outsourcing something, do you want to give indemnities? Are you happy to? The answer to that, more often than not, lies in your negotiating power. And sometimes you've no choice. Um, and the other thing that I think is incredibly important is that you decide what happens on termination. So I was advising an organization a few years ago who were pitching for a piece of public sector work. And the public sector body was insisting that Chupi apply so that they had to take on all of their employees, which in fairness to them, they were happy to do. It was a a utilities business, so it was one that was, they needed the personnel, they needed the headcount, they needed the experience. So they were happy enough to take them on. And I said to them, well, what's going to happen at the end of the five-year contract? And they hadn't actually thought about it. And there was nothing in any of the contractual documentation about what would happen at the end of the five-year 
contract. And I said to them, well, what if the public body decides that they're going to change the service provider, they're going to retender the contract and it goes to somebody else, or they decide that you've spent an absolute fortune putting schmacht on everybody, how, and they decided that they'll take it back in then. You spent all of this money putting really good shape and making something commercially viable and financially practical, but you've no control over what happens at the end, and you could end up if they decide to take it back in or change the service provider and don't insist that Tupi applies, you could end up with a whole bunch of people that you then have to make redundant. And some of the people in this particular scenario had 30 and 40 years service and huge, huge redundancy entitlements. Ultimately, they actually decided to walk away from the contract because they couldn't get any comfort from the public sector body, but it was something that they hadn't thought about. So if you take anything away from today, apart from hopefully some clarity around Tupi and whether it applies in an outsourcing scenario, take away this. Think about what happens at the end. Think about what happens on termination.